Hello, listeners. Hello. Welcome. Hi. I was going to say welcome in a bunch of different languages, but I kind of forgot how to do that. Welcome in. That's the only one I know. <laughs> because it sounds like English. I should know how to say welcome in Spanish, but I'm completely spacing right now. Hola. There goes four. That's hello. Oh, yeah, that's close enough, though. Same <laughs> idea. It's like, there's four years of Spanish for you. Hello, this is Funk Radio, where we are clearly uh, culturally knowledgeable. Yes. This is Peter, and someone else is here, too. This is Kyle. Hi, Kyle. Kyle is sick. Yeah, I thought I, I, I thought you were sad, but you're actually just getting sick. I guess you're sad I'm about sad sick. because I was going to say I'm sad because I'm sick. So mm. I'm just going to, while you talk, just cough randomly throughout the episode. <laughs> I mean, there's also editing, so if that happens, then... No, you have to leave the coughs in, or else no one will know that I'm sick. (laughs) Otherwise, this banter has no meaning. Exactly. So, so Kyle, the topic for this episode, which listeners probably already know at this point, uh, if they clicked on it, um, or read the title, at least. This is one that uh, we kind of talked about you know as early as a few weeks ago and i think we've been looking forward to it it's just taken me a little bit of time to really go through all the research and do it right but uh i i finished it throughout this last week and uh it, it's pretty interesting I, I like stuff like this so i think we're gonna have me a good too. time yeah i don't know why i have this weird i mean i guess we both do but this weird love of like obs- not obscure i guess obscure technology but like old technology yeah I, I, as time goes on, I'm digging this kind of stuff more and more. Um, mm-hmm. And something I was thinking too is that cause, you know, in this episode, it, it's going to be focused mostly on the early '80s. Um, although you and I were '90s kids, and I I was thinking earlier that it's kind of funny that I've been gravitating a lot toward technology of the '80s more so than the '90s. So it's weird that it's like nostalgia, but it's from before our time. I guess yeah. that's probably called hipsterism. Yeah, pretty much. Now that I talk, now that I say it out loud. Congratulations, um, hipster. I don't know. No, I get what you're saying. I think because a lot of the technology from the 90s like isn't that dissimilar from what we have today, whereas the 80s a lot of that technology kind of died in the 90s, so it seems a little bit more foreign to us. You yeah, know? I I think part of it um is at least for me and probably similar for you is like a fascination with physical media um which is something that is uh, at this point is kind of all but died out and i Mm -hmm. think the 90s was when you were starting to see the transition away from that it was slow but and it didn't really fully happen until like you know into the 2000s but i think that's when that maybe that transition started to move away and like any physical media that was still you know pretty widespread in the 90s i think was in the later years of those existing technologies yeah Um, true i was gonna say peter if you if you're into 80s technology you should watch the show halt and catch fire have you heard of it i've heard of it but i've never seen it it's all about like 80s tech industry in texas because that's actually where a lot of the tech got started before it moved to uh, california and stuff texas instruments you might say yes which was like a computer company back in this era before they like really focused on calculators before they invented an 80 dollar calculator you had to buy for high school There was something on that recently. I might have been watching a video on it that was basically like, why do they cost so much? It's literally just because they have a monopoly. monopoly yeah. Which I, I think probably everybody knows. Um, yeah. Okay, so we should, we're should we like 10 minutes in and we should probably actually start <laughs> talking about the real thing. Uh, I've been alluding to it and being like, oh, you all know what the topic is, but I, we should actually talk about it. So basically something that you and I both never knew uh, really until this came up was the fact that uh, your standard run-of-the-mill cassette tapes were at one time very popularly used as a distribution medium for video games. Mm-hmm. 
I'm not really sure how this slips by. Well, actually, I, I kind of do know how it did, and that'll kind of come up later. Anyway, so this this kind of crossed my radar at some point. I don't know exactly how. Um, I do know vaguely how, though. Um, as someone, I don't really consider myself a, a video gamer because I, I don't really play video games all that often. Mm. Um, but um, I have a lot of interest in, like, the history of it, especially in, like, the 70s, 80s period. Mm-hmm. Um when it was kind of at the dawn of video games. Um, and I, I do follow a lot of um, channels on YouTube that go into like the history of video games and as well as like the history of like early computers and technology and stuff in those sort of eras. Mm-hmm. So um, I find all that stuff really interesting. So I guess, I guess vaguely some and somewhere in that whirlwind, I, I kind of caught wind of this, but I've never seen any, um, like really comprehensive thing of like this is this was a thing here's a whole history behind it like there's there's not a whole lot of that out there so yeah. that's part of why it took me some time to put this topic together was because it kind of had to piece together a lot of smaller bits of information rather than being able to pull from like any one central area so yeah, yeah if, no, if nothing you. else there's there were lots of uh, <laughs> sources that contributed to this that's better than me. My, my only source is Wikipedia. You're not supposed to tell them that. Oh, whoops. Oopsie. So I guess to get started with this um, whole topic, um, basically, uh, you know, and, and we've referenced this many times in, in previous episodes, even fairly recently, um, as we've talked about other technologies, either ones that failed fairly quickly or ones that lasted longer. Um, basically, that magnetic tape has been a thing for a long time. Mm-hmm. Um, not only for audio in various forms of cassette tapes, but also just for data storage in itself. A good example of this is if you think to those like big IBM mainframes of the sixties, uh, with all those reel to reel machines spinning around mm-hmm. in like a, a, the size of a warehouse like that, you know, that's, that's an, that, a prominent example of like data storage on tape, mm-hmm. um, and, you know, when you think about cassette tapes in general, like that's still analog data that's written to those tapes, but it's more prominently in the form of audio. That's how most people know about it. Um, and uh, specifically uh, tape that was used in like convenient like cassette containers um, goes as far back as the 50s. But it really didn't. That was more in like the. You, you might consider like industrial computing or, or military purposes. Like it wasn't really on the consumer market until the seventies. Mm-hmm. And in the late seventies, specifically in 1977, we really saw the introduction of what, uh, we, what we would now call like the home computer, basically. I mean, this was a very new concept at the time. Cause like I said, compute, uh, you know, every, a lot of people know that, you know, computers prior to this were, uh, not something that you really saw in the home. They were, at best used in businesses. Um, and prior to that, like the military basically. Mm-hmm. Um, and they were also very large at the time, uh, you know, prior to this. So really in the late seventies, uh, this newfangled concept of the home computer came around and this kind of blew people's minds in that year. Uh, there were kind of three really big prominent models that came out. Uh, they were the Apple II, the Commodore pet and the Tandy TRS 80. And each of those actually, you know, even from the begin, the very beginning of home computers, we saw each of these prominent models having their own uh, peripheral add-ons, if you will, um, that were cassette drives, uh, similar to, you might say, like a, uh, a floppy disk drive or something. So out, out of the gate, you know, you of home computing, you have these cassette drives that you could get for data storage, basically. And um, this trend continued throughout, you know, the rest of the the 70s uh, in those few years. I kind of got wins that in those first early years that cassette drives were pretty unreliable and they were frustrating to use and they weren't that great. Mm -hmm. Um, And that's something that kind of followed the entirety of cassette drives. But I think it it really got a lot better in the early 80s. But they were they were around in this purpose or in this format, uh, you know, as early as I think even as early as like 75, maybe. Um, but really, you know, the last few years, of the 70s is when this was, was more prominently a thing. 
So a, a couple other computers you might see in those years were the Atari 400 and 800, the Commodore VIC-20. So that was that's really kind of covering some of the more popular models of the late 70s into 1980. Um, we're not really going to get into any of those. And if this research was anything, it was really me having to put a cap on, like, we can't go down all these rabbit holes because there's a lot of really fascinating history of all this stuff, but we just can't go into it at all in this mm-hmm. episode. Like I said, the the format of uh, using cassettes for computer data really, uh, from what I can tell, seemed to hit its peak right around the first couple of years of the 80s. So that's really where we're going to be kind of sitting in, in for this topic uh, is within like 1980 to 83 ish. Um, and so I think something as I was putting this together, I, that I realized was that I think to really understand where cassette tapes stood um, in this whole, I guess in the computer industry um, you, we also should talk about the other options that people had at the time for data storage. And so we're going we're gonna to kind of start out by going through like a comparison of three different formats. The first being ROM cartridges, um, which I think most people would associate with video game consoles nowadays, at least, you know, mm-hmm. prior video game consoles. They, from what I can tell, they started being used in game consoles in the mid 70s. But at the time, which I actually didn't know, was that that format was used for various home computers as well. And not necessarily just for video games, like this was just any kind of computer program. Um, so kind of some pros and cons, I guess, of these. So the pros would be, uh, basically they had no loading time. Like once you plugged this thing in and you, you know, ran whatever, you know, typed in whatever you needed to, to get the thing loaded, uh, Mm -hmm. really pretty much immediately the computer could access the entire thing without any loading, which was pretty good. Mm. They also contained at least in terms of like the, the late seventies with those computers that I mentioned before, you could actually potentially uh, take advantage of more memory space by using a cartridge because it wasn't relying just on what the computer had available. Mm-hmm. Um, to my knowledge, that that's that was a, an advantage that the cartridges had over the other formats at this time because the other formats couldn't do that. Mm-hmm. And uh, so the I guess the the negatives of cartridges for one they were really expensive, um, partially due to them being fairly complex to manufacture. They also the 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 thing I just said a minute ago about how like they expanded upon the memory of the computer, mm-hmm. that kind of, and the way I phrase that is kind of a misnomer. But basically, as these newer computers of the early '80s came out, suddenly you know a computer on board might have 64 kilobytes of memory. So uh, a cartridge that has 16 kilobytes of memory, that's you know, you're limited by 16 now rather than the computer having the capability to go up to 64. Mm. So what used to be an advantage now became a disadvantage just because they had that limit. So anyway, basically, if we're looking kind of in within the lens of the early 80s, cartridges, they couldn't hold as much memory as the other formats and they were pretty expensive. Mm. They were also proprietary to each like computer brand, basically. So one that might work on an Atari computer wouldn't necessarily work on a Tandy. So that was kind of one pain in the butt as well. Also, they couldn't really be, because they were proprietary and they had this you know special design, you couldn't really easily copy the software from, from one to another or that kind of stuff. So um, I think that was kind of a disadvantage, if you will. Yeah, because like each system had its own shape and style of cartridge. Like, yeah, not kind of like video game systems did back in the day. Yeah, and even pe- different people, even if they're using the same kind of computer, it's not like they can, or if they write their own programs, or or if they want to copy a game from a cartridge or a different program, they couldn't necessarily just copy it. So, so, so that's cartridges. Um, another popular format at the time uh, that was I wouldn't. It was kind of up and coming, I suppose. Um, was was floppy disks. And the reason I hesitated with that statement was because uh, at the time of the early 80s, floppy disks were already in their second iteration, uh, which is the five and a quarter inch floppy disk. Um, Previous to this, there was the larger eight inch floppy disk. Those are the really big ones. If you've ever seen one of those in person or a picture or something, Mm -hmm. Um, those had been available to consumers as early as the uh, early 70s. 
So this is almost a decade later now. Like they've already uh, improved on the design because I think people were basically like these things are too damn big. So uh, they made they made the five and a quarter inch floppies. Um, now people, especially our age, are uh, I wouldn't necessarily say younger, but um, you know uh, I I think the floppy disks that we all think of are the three and a half inch. Uh, ones that were the third iteration that came mm-hmm. after this those didn't really start hitting the consumer market until i think the mid 80s or so so at at the point that we're talking about in this particular episode those hadn't really come on the market yet if i remember too correct me if i'm wrong the reason that they call them floppy disks is because the original floppy was actually floppy like it it could bend yeah the, the big eight inch ones were actually floppy um i don't I don't know if like the five and a quarter inch ones were like medium floppiness. I, I as, inherently, as you get smaller, like there's not going to be as much exactly flexibility judging, necessarily. Judging by the picture you posted, it does it looks like hard plastic to me. But yeah, I always yeah. I always thought it was funny that they called them floppy disks because you know the ones we were used to, the three and a half inch, were yeah. just you know hard plastic. But then one of my coworkers who is much older than me uh, basically said like, Oh, the original floppy disks actually could flop like a thin piece of plastic or whatever. Right. Yeah. So that's cool. Uh, that's a little tangent, I guess. Um, so, okay. So uh, floppy disks, like I said, if we're getting into the pros of them, like I said, they were considered really reliable. Uh, mm. And also something that uh, was nice about floppy disks is that there was kind of, I guess you could say like an industry standard design of these, so, theoretically, you could use floppy disks, the same kind of floppy disks, in a Commodore computer or a, an Apple or uh, an Atari. Now, theoretically, in terms of the software, like you'd have to reformat them for each of those different computers because they were all using different, you know, whatevers. But you know, software-wise, but you know, hardware-wise, it was the same thing that could be used across the board. So it's, mm-hmm. that's kind of cool. And you could copy from them and to them pretty easily as well, mm-hmm. um, which was nice for. A lot of people who were wanting to copy programs wasn't there like an anti-piracy thing in like the 80s that was that where they said like don't copy that floppy or something let me google that quick (laughs) that's funny google that really quick that sounds familiar now that you say that but i actually don't know uh yeah it was a an ad campaign that they put out it looks like in the early 90s i was gonna Uh, say that sounds more like a 90s thing uh yeah it was a uh, early 90s campaign basically trying to get kids to not pirate shit with the phrase don't copy that floppy I don't know if you want to play this on this episode because it's slightly not relevant but there is a rap song called don't copy that floppy <laughs> I have um, to send this tell to you, you what tell you what uh, how about we will play that as kind of like the the break in the middle of the episode sounds good um, uh, so we'll 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 put that on hold whatever one's just gonna be waiting on that instead of boring talking uh, I will I will watch that when we take the break. Sounds good. From what I can tell, it seems like the software market was extremely open. So it was really easy even like to copy a game that you bought from the store. Like it was pretty easy to copy that onto a blank disk, for example, and share it with people. And that seemed, that's the impression I get is that that seemed to be more of just like the norm or people were like, oh, totally okay with that. Because there wasn't necessarily the sentiment that software you know people who wrote software programmers i guess really had the same uh intellectual property as like someone who made hardware Mm -hmm. and i think that changed fairly quickly but uh, i know in the early years it seemed to be a lot more just you know okay to be copying stuff at least that that's that's the impression i get someone may correct me on that Mm. uh at least if we had listeners someone would probably correct me on that (laughs) Uh, anyway, so floppy disks, they were reliable. They were non-proprietary. Uh, it was easy to copy stuff. Everything was all good. The disadvantage of floppies is that, especially in these years, they were pretty expensive for a lot of people, mm. especially outside of the U.S. Um, and I don't know if that's where why if there was like, oh, they were all made in the U.S., so they're cheaper or something like that. Mm. I read that in countries like the U.K. and Australia, and I also saw people talking about this on, on YouTube as well, that like floppy disk drives at this time, like the external ones that you would get as an add-on to your computer. And a lot of times the, in those countries, that could cost more than the computer itself. So for some reason, I don't know the exact reason, uh, maybe it's importing or whatever. It was very expensive 
as a format in really, you know, the UK or Europe or Australia, whatever. So a lot of the, for this reason, a lot of people just simply didn't adopt floppy disks in these countries because it was just too expensive. So I take it they would use cartridges instead or. Yeah. And actually what I, well, what I'm going to get into is the third, like main format of this time being cassettes. Cassettes is really what took off in these countries as the primary alternative. And I read somewhere, I think by, did it say 83 or 85? Maybe it was like 90% of us households were using floppy disks. So by the mid eighties, like floppy was like the way to go in the U S so uh, I think probably by that time, even cartridges weren't even being used that much. So I guess launching right into that then with cassette tapes really being the, the third big format of the time and really, which is like the main focus of this episode, but I wanted to kind of go into the other ones to kind of compare them. Mm-hmm. Um, cassette tapes were at this time, obviously they were already pretty well established as a popular format for music. But, you know, as I said at the beginning of the episode, you know, magnetic tape was equally viable for data storage and it had already been used that way for decades. But, you know, this exact format of the compact cassette, they are basically like, well, why can't we use that to distribute software? It's perfectly capable. They were very cheap in comparison to the other formats, which was great. So people with lower incomes or, you know, whether there was import taxes, I don't know what that kind of stuff might have been. But... Either way, cassettes were super cheap in like the UK, Europe, for example, in comparison to floppy that was really expensive. So people really jumped onto cassette in these other markets outside of the US. Um, and for this reason, I, I don't remember the exact number, but um, I think maybe like less than I don't quote me on this, but less than 10% of people in the US by the mid 80s were using cassette. Um so it was it was pretty niche in in the U.S. market, but in Europe and everything like this was like the dominant format, and this also ties back to something I said at the beginning of the episode of knowing why we didn't really know this. I think it's because we didn't grow up in Europe or the U.K. Mm-hmm. We grew up in a country where this didn't really take off and in the same way. Uh, but another big reason that uh, cassette was awesome, you know, aside from being cheap in itself. They were completely compatible with, uh, or the interface, I guess, with the computers was completely compatible with using standard audio cassette players, which it, like everybody had at the time. Mm-hmm. So they're cheap. They don't require any extra hardware that you don't already have for the most part. So it's kind of a no brainer. I have a stupid question. So sure. did the computer itself have a cassette deck in it or did you have to plug a cassette player into the computer? So we're actually going to get into that pretty soon. Um, oh, sorry. The short answer to that is mostly it was an external thing. Um, gotcha. I think some later models of some computers actually did have them on board. Uh, in fact, I know they uh, many of them did, but you know, I like, think initially they didn't. Okay. But we'll, yeah, we'll get into that soon. Um, so really the only downsides of cassette tapes were um, comparatively, they were sort of unreliable compared to the other ones, but not enough to really make them you know completely unusable mm-hmm. um and the the slow loading times was also an issue and uh we'll, we'll kind of get into that a little bit uh, more later in the episode but mm-hmm. um i guess keep that in mind i guess it's a downside so we've been talking for a while there, there's plenty more to talk about but uh should we go ahead and take that break i know there's probably some uh, anticipation waiting with this <laughs> with this commercial so i guess we'll use this as our kind of break sounds good so uh we'll be right back listeners i'm gonna go ahead and watch this did I hear you right? Did I hear you saying that you're gonna make a copy of a game without paying? Come on, guys! I thought you knew better. Don't copy that floppy. I'm your MC, Double Death, DP. That's the disc protector for you and the posse. That's the artist, writers, designers, and programmers that work up the images for games and grammar that let you learn, but also play the game you came here for today. Yeah, so listeners, we're not going to play that entire thing because apparently I didn't realize that was like a four-minute song. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, But you heard a good piece of it, I guess. Uh, Okay, so obviously I've just gone through a pretty substantial uh, comparison of these formats. So really, these are the big three, cartridges, floppies, and cassettes. And I think they each had kind of had their strong points, whether it be reliability or speed or cost you know i think partially depended on where you were in the world 
Um, and I mentioned earlier, I mentioned a couple of like earlier computer models kind of just offhand from around 1977 to 1980. But uh, if we're going to look at a couple, we're not going to go into too much detail, but I, I picked out a, like two computer models from the early 80s that uh, were among the more popular ones, especially with video games. Mm. And um, like I said, we're not going to get too much in detail, but I'm kind of going to use these as examples for explaining in a little bit how this whole format of cassette tapes actually worked. So the two that I'm, I decided to talk about were the Commodore 64 and the ZX Spectrum. Now I'm going to remind you again uh, that these are not game consoles. They are actually like home computers for general use. Mm. However, video games really made up a large portion of the software market at the time, which is, which is pretty neat. And a lot of people really re- use these computers for at the time and remember using them for video games. Mm-hmm. So um, that's just a thought. So the Commodore 64, um, this was released in the U.S. by Commodore Business Machines in August of 1982. It cost $595 at the time, which adjusted for inflation 2019. Uh, that's a, um, I think it was almost $1,600. It was just shy of that. Jesus. Uh, something I didn't know is actually this actually the Commodore 64 actually holds the world record for the best-selling computer of all time. Really? Um, yeah, and I actually stupidly didn't put the number of units that have been sold. I should actually look at that really quick. But I know people used it into like the 90s. I think. Uh, yeah, it was discontinued in 1994, so it was around for a long time. Uh, it says it sold 17 million, roughly. Yeah, there's, there seems to be varying numbers, that, uh, estimates, but yeah, up to 17 million. Wow. So aside from, you know, even looking back now, even by the mid-80s, like a couple of years after it came out, it accounted for 30 to 40% of the market share in the U.S., this mm-hmm. one model of computer. So that's insane. Yeah. So over the lifetime of the Commodore 64, over 10,000 software titles were made, uh, with about 60 to 70% of those being video games. Mm. So what I said a minute ago was no joke. Like video games were a huge part of software in general, but also for the most best on computer of all time. So mm-hmm. um, that that says a lot, I think, about how how much people like video games um, and even did back then. But also, you know, just considering, you know, cassette tapes specifically, you know, there's a big market for for using those. Mm. But again, not in the U.S., I guess, as much. Um, the other one uh, is the ZX Spectrum. It's actually spelled out ZX Spectrum, but we are in the U.S., one of the few countries that pronounces it Z. Most other English-speaking countries call it Z. So that's why technically the name is ZX Spectrum. That sounds a lot cooler. Yeah. Um, so that was released in the U.K., uh, so this is a... Uh, UK brand, uh, Sinclair Research, in April of 1982. So I think around something like six months before the Commodore 64. Mm. So roughly around the same time. Uh, So this was a really popular system in the UK. I I read that it was kind of comparable in its success to the Commodore in the US. I don't think it sold nearly as many. Mm. But, you know, it it was one of the big ones, if not the big one in the UK at the same time. Part of the reason that it was so popular is because it had a low introductory price of 125 pounds which comparing to us dollars and inflation is about 450 dollars today mm. which compared to the 1600 of the other one like that's super cheap yeah um, and it's really impressive that they could do that and i again i didn't really go into you know a shitload of detail with researching these two machines and comparing them um so i don't know if like the hardware was necessarily comparable um, um. I'm just kind of reading the specs. Uh, it seems... I think they were close. The memory seems comparable, but I think the graphics on the Commodore 64 were better. Mm-hmm. Um, it says here yeah. the ZX sold 5 million units, and it was similarly discontinued in 1992. So. Oh, interesting. So, yeah, I, I think even if they weren't necessarily equal in terms of, like, hardware specs... Um, the the bigger takeaway, I guess, here is just the their popularity in their respective markets. Mm-hmm. The so the ZX Spectrum it, it was made in the UK. It was very popular in the UK. As I said earlier, cassette tapes were also very popular in that market because they were cheap as well. So that's really where cassette tapes shined. I think was Europe slash UK. So kind of using you know those two vague. Uh, 
descriptions of those two computers. Uh, we're going to look at two different ways that cassette tapes were used for video games. Um, the two different types were actually, are actually pretty similar. There's only slight differences, but you know, I'm, I'm going to go into both just because, you know, for sake of talking. Mm-hmm. Um, so in terms of like act- how the actual tapes work. So as I mentioned earlier, um, in most cases, uh, especially in the early days, really the, I, the cassette mechanisms were, a separate device that you would plug into the computer rather than being built into the computer itself itself. Mm-hmm. There were exceptions to that, especially later on. But um, so in terms of the, the tape technology itself, really what this was, it's really simple. Actually, it's not very complicated at all. Basically the tapes are encoded with a sequence of modulated audio signals, which, you know, as, as humans, we kind of hear that as, like, it sounds similar to, like, a modem or, like, that classic dial-up internet noise that we all know and love. So it sounds similar to that. Um, and, yes, you are hearing me correctly. It is actually audio that's on these tapes. What? But it's basically audio. It, it's these modulated, like, audio pulses, basically, that are basically the short durations of them. are ba- They're basically interpreted as zeros and ones which is, you know, binary bits, which can be can be converted into a digital signal of bits, of binary bits that's used to make up the software. So the computer can read that basically. Hmm. Um, so the, the, these signals on the tape are actually analog, but they're converted by the computer or into the computer as a digital signal. And that's what's basically compiling the software. And that's really, I mean, in terms of how it works, I mean, you know, from a basic standpoint, that's it. Pretty straightforward. And so actually these these video game or data tapes are compatible with a regular tape player. You can put it into a tape deck and press play and you can listen to this. It doesn't sound nice, but you can, you know, you can listen to it. So with a computer like the ZX Spectrum, for example, in the UK, you could literally take, you know, any tape recorder cassette deck you had, put one of these tapes into it, um, use a standard headphone jack, the 3.5 millimeter. We've talked about that before. Mm-hmm. Literally just connecting that between the tape deck and the computer and bam, you can interface with the computer with this thing. Uh, stupid question. Could I do yeah. that with my modern computer now or do you need some sort of program uh, to do that? You mean connecting a cassette tape to your computer? And then playing a video game from it. I, it you mean with like a um, like an emulator? Yeah, of one like, of these older computers. I'm pretty sure I, you can do that. Would I just need an emulator of that computer? I guess. I get or or a computer that or any really any emulator of something that can read that audio. Yeah. I'm pretty sure you could. I mean, I would just cut out the middleman and just get an emulator of the game itself. But <laughs> right, I, I would be curious for uh, posterity's sake, like if it's still possible to kind of recreate that today. Oh yeah, and um. Kind kind of the reverse of that actually that I've that I have seen people doing. I didn't write this down, but uh, I'll go ahead and mention it. Is that um, you know there's all these archives of you know all these games that were available for these old computers. You know, a couple decades ago, mm-hmm. there's archives of what those of those audio recordings for those games. People just log them on you know onto like their phone or what or their iPod or whatever, and that has a 3.5 millimeter. Uh, oh, headphone jack you yeah. connect that into the the computer the, these you know people who collect these old computers it works just as fine it's just it's literally just audio that's really funny so i think because of how basic that is i think you know you probably could do what you were asking of mm-hmm. you know as long as you have something on your modern computer that can read that and interpret it as a game yeah i, I think it could work just fine that's pretty awesome this is kind of reminding me a little bit of when we did that episode where I was playing around with the micro cassette recorder. That's kind of what I'm getting at. I'm prodding you to do this. <laughs> oh, okay. Well, there we go. That's something where that I really enjoyed about that whole experience is that it is just a standard analog input. I could still interface completely fine with a piece of hardware from 30 years ago mm. or more without any problems. So I, I really like this stuff that like, it really is a basic interface that is really versatile that like really all it comes down to is just audio through a regular standard cable. Mm. And the fact that that can be converted into 
software or a video game is super cool to me. And I never knew that was a thing. So a lot of computers, especially like even the ones in the uh, in the in the earlier seventies, in the years before this, they also had a similar setup to this. Um, I just chose to kind of talk about these two computers because they're kind of in the era where this was more prominent. Mm-hmm. So the ZX Spectrum had one like that. Like I think it was a more slimmed down system overall, which is why it was cheaper. Mm. Um, so like you would have to use an external tape player. Now the Commodore sixty four, it was similar but not exactly the same thing. Um, it still used standard tapes, but um, they used a, uh, a proprietary device called uh, the Commodore Data Set, and basically it was this basically the same thing, but it was a proprietary tape player, basically. So basically, Commodore was the Apple of the eighties, <laughs> uh, even though Apple, Apple was they, its own. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Exactly. So it didn't actually use that same headphone jack. It used a proprietary. Um, Actually, it connected. It was. Uh, it used a an, what was what's called an edge connection. That's basically any time that you're plugging straight into a circuit board. Mm. So you'll notice that that connection is uh, digital, not analog. But the tape is still analog. So what this means is that the conversion from analog to digital actually happens within that dataset device. Mm. So that so then you're getting a digital signal into the computer, whereas on the other examples, it's an analog going into the computer, and then the computer's doing the the work of converting it. So, but in the, the, in terms of the way it worked, it's the, it's the same thing. And I think technically the, the way the audio worked was slightly different. Like instead of like pulses of different lengths of time, it was like different types of waveforms or something. I don't remember exactly what the difference is, but it was a slightly different, but mm-hmm. overall the concept is the same. Um, there's just some technical differences. Mm-hmm. Um, something I read, though, is that um, later on in the years of the Commodore, there were aftermarket converters that basically allowed people to get around the proprietary thing mm. so they could use their own cassette player, Cool, uh, basically. So that's good. Yeah. So really, I mean, there's not really a whole lot more in terms of like the technology of it. That's really all it is. And I find that pretty fascinating. I love that. Yeah. So, okay, so you have a tape player, you have a computer. How do you play the game? Or how do you get it to load the game more accurately? Mm-hmm. So first you load up the game, you load up the, the cassette into the cassette player. Make sure it's rewound to the beginning of the tape. <laughs> Obviously, make sure the, the cable is connected, whichever type it is. So on your computer, you type in whatever command is appropriate for the particular computer uh, that basically says, okay, computer, I'm ready to load something from a tape. And then once you do that, you hit play on the cassette. So as the tape is playing, it's slowly loading all of this into the computer's memory as it's coming through. So because of the way this works, you have to play in real time. You have to play this entire sequence to load the entire game into the memory before you can play it. And this, I from what I could tell, is usually takes about four to five minutes. So you're, you have to wait for the, this entire tape to load the game on before you can play anything. Uh, now, the interesting thing about this is that this is, I don't know if technically this is the first example, but if it's not, then it's certainly one of the first instances of loading screens in a video game. Mm. Uh, this was kind of a new concept at the time, because now, like, we all, we all, you know, we've always lived with that. That's mm. always been a thing, because really what that is, is the computer has to load a chunk of stuff so that it can play a game smoothly once it's all loaded. Um and, you know, that, that's kind of a no-brainer now. But at the time, that was kind of a new thing. Because prior to this, really, you know, with things like cartridges, like I mentioned earlier, it can basically access all of that stuff immediately. So it's it's just a difference with, with this format. And I think this is, a, you could say this is another disadvantage, I suppose, of tapes, was that you had this wait time. But um, de- the developers of the games tried to make it a little bit more appealing by basically... Uh, putting a splash screen graphic image mm-hmm. on the screen that basically it was a kind of like a title card basically of the game that said whatever, you know, whatever the title of the game was plus some cool looking eight bit graphic of, of what it was. So something to look at while you waited. Some of them actually also had music that was playing as you waited, which is kind of cool. Hmm. Did these cassettes have the ability to save game progress? The short answer to that is no. Not because the cassettes couldn't handle that kind of information, mm-hmm. but because 
games, to my knowledge, video games didn't, the concept of saving your game didn't really happen until like later in the 80s True. and the I early know, 90s. I know the first cartridge game that had a save um, function was actually the original Legend of Zelda. But I was curious oh, really? if, okay. um, because these cassettes basically, you know, had data on them. If save data was written, if there, if there was the ability, if save data was written to the cassette or if save data was saved to the computer on, I guess it's right. a very rudimentary hard drive and then accessed. I think if there, if there was any of that, and it would probably be a little bit later in the eighties than what we're talking about now. Cause I think the computers of this time, you really were not storing anything on the computer itself. Pretty much, I think that partially that's why they had such low memory built in, is because they assumed everything you were doing was on this external media. Whereas now, you know, you can have a terabyte hard drive in your computer and you can store as much shit as you want in there. Um, I'm, I'm, I'm coming about this the wrong way, but basically, okay. you can save data to a cassette that's blank on, mm-hmm. like, say, the data set you were talking about with the Commodore... Yeah. So you can actually write data from the computer to a cassette and you treat it like, like a like a flash yeah. drive essentially. But if a cassette comes pre-installed with a game, with that game audio data, whatever, that data can't be overwritten by a save file of any sort. Correct. Yeah, and actually, um, I'm glad you brought this up because I I'm realizing as you're saying this that I kind of failed to explain that. Um, not only can computers read from tapes, but they could definitely absolutely write to blank yeah. tapes as well. See, and I, I, I didn't get that. That's awesome. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, sorry. I, I guess I, that kind of, I kind of didn't even think to say that for some reason. Um, yeah. And that was more relevant, not necessarily of saving game progress, but more of like copying any kind of software or a game yeah. to a blank tape. You could or, absolutely do that the same way you would with, um, uh, like a floppy disk. Obviously okay. the, the way it goes about doing it is different, but the concept is the same. Yeah, yeah. I was just reading like a little bit on that, and I was just like, oh, wait, you can write to them? And it just like clicked. So as I was saying, the the loading screens of these games would take four to five minutes. You'd usually have a graphic up on the screen, if not also some music. Part of the, the experience, though, that was, I guess, more dis- distinct or memorable if you grew up with this was that uh, not there wasn't just uh, a picture on the screen. You had a couple of things that were pretty noticeable. Uh, for one, the, those modulated audio signals that the computer was reading mm-hmm. that I said sounded kind of like a uh, a compu- uh, like a modem or the dial-up noise, that mm-hmm. was playing out loud the entire time for 45 minutes. That sounds terrifying. Yeah, um, and in addition to that, during this whole time, and I, I didn't dig deep enough into it to really figure out why, but uh, in addition to that, in tandem with these noises that are happening this whole time, there's also like uh, flickering colored bars going across the screen, around the edges of the screen, rather, because you have the loading graphic in the middle of the screen. Mm-hmm. So you have these weird noises going on, all these flashing colors going on for like five minutes as you're waiting for this game to load. And it's just the weirdest thing. I realize there's people that might be listening. They'd be like, oh, I grew up with that. That's not so weird. Or it was weird. But to me, like, I've never seen this or heard of it. And this is all new to me. And it's just the most bizarre thing. Um, I'm I'm on the fence whether I want to play a very short clip of the audio from this to the listeners. I might not, just because it's horrible to listen to. You need to give, like, a like a seizure warning or something. I don't even yeah, know. Yeah, I mean, th- there's some serious hashtag triggers here. Um. So I would I would say go uh, go to YouTube listeners because I'm not I'm not gonna play it because it's horrible. Um, go listen, type in like I think maybe even like cassette video game loading or something like that. There's there's plenty of examples of what this looks and sounds like, and it's very unique and it's kind of horrible. <laughs> yeah. So you you gotta hand it to the people who sat looking and listening to this in their living rooms throughout the eighties. It's, it's yeah. just kind of a hilarious, horrible thing. Uh, an article I was reading from that'snotcurrent.com sums up this experience as, quote, an epileptic fit-inducing screen and the sound of digital cats being strangled. <laughs> uh, I think that's pretty appropriate based on what I've learned about this whole thing. Um, 
So, but, you know, after sitting through this for several minutes, the game will load up and then you could play it just like a regular video game. Sweet. And that was basically the experience of uh, playing a video game from a cassette tape. Now, if you wanted to play that game again at a later time, you just have to remember to rewind it back to the beginning. (laughs) (laughs) And on that note, actually, just another kind of random note I'll say because that made me think of it. Um, uh, I saw some cases where people said it was pretty common for um, because cassettes could, I think, hold quite a bit mm-hmm. uh, of of data, and I people were saying it was fairly common to see um, like compilation tapes where like a single cassette would hold like five games or ten games. And the interesting thing with that is that you would have to figure out where on the tape each game started. Oh, that's uh, if that makes sense. Yeah. So um, I know like on most uh, regular uh, cassette players or like tape players, they have like a little ticker counter that counts up as the tape plays. And so you could figure out, I think that way, like, oh, I need to fast forward to 95. Mm-hmm. That's where this game starts. And then you press play and load the game that way. Um, but not all tape players had that. So sometimes you kind of had to figure it out on your own. I believe actually the data set for the Commodore 64 was an example of one that did not have that. So if you were playing a, you know, a, a compilation tape of games, uh, you were kind of on your own to figure that out. Wow. That's kind of sad. So that, that's kind of interesting quirks of the format, I guess. And uh, so something else that I, I guess kind of goes, I wanted to kind of end the episode on this because it doesn't really fit anywhere else, but it's pretty interesting. The distribution, some interesting distribution methods um, of these, of these, uh, of these games. Um, like I was saying earlier, this is literally just an audio signal. Mm-hmm. So theoretically, you're not restrained just to cassette tapes. And uh, pretty early on, this was, you know, apparent to distributors of video games. So uh, some companies actually broadcasted software audio streams on the radio or television. What? Which which blows my mind. Uh, I guess so apparently like the host would describe a software program saying like, okay, this is what this is. Uh, and they say, okay, everybody, connect your cassette tape recorder to your radio or I guess maybe put it next to your TV. And then they would broadcast this... <laughs> <laughs> you know the software through this this audio thing and people record it at home and now i have a piece of software that i can go play that's crazy which is absolutely insane to me yeah and this was a thing by the late 70s or so with those initial you know computer models i had mentioned mm-hmm. um by the late 70s this was already a thing like there was even like a show i guess or a program i should say on uh bbc called chip shop where they did this and I think that was only one of a few that did that. Huh. So that's crazy to me. Like, like yeah. that's how open software works. They're just like, okay, everybody, record this and then go, go play it. That's you know, whether funny. it was a game or a different piece of software. That's so crazy. Mm-hmm. Another thing that I think you will very much like is similarly in like tech and computing magazines, they had flexi disc uh, seven inch records. Oh hell yeah! Which basically were the same thing. That's just audio. Mm-hmm. Uh, for example, the May 1977 issue of Interface Age magazine contained the first floppy ROM flexi disk record. So theoretically, you would just hook up your record player to your computer in the same way what? as a cassette player, and you could load the software that way. <laughs> what? Isn't that so crazy? I need to find one of these so I can do that. I've I've never heard of any of this, and it's so crazy to me that they were actually not only was it possible that people, but they were actually doing this pretty much as early as you could possibly do it. That's insane, and that blows my mind. Okay, I, th- I think I'll do the flexi disc version, and you have to f- buy a cassette tape and try the cassette version on your computer. <laughs> that would be fun. I um I think it's pretty easy to go just go grab video game cassettes from like eBay or whatever. Um, so yeah, if you're interested listeners, um, they don't, it obviously depends on the game or what system or the condition, but it seems like some tapes seem to be fairly decent cost. Most cases seem to be between the 10 and $20 range. So that's kind of really the end of the, the bulk of research, uh, really that I did for this episode. And, uh, this is the kind of, this is like my favorite stuff. Yeah. This is the, the favorite, like finding something that's, 
even if it's not obscure, if it wasn't obscure at the time, just something that like we've never heard of, but it's like really fascinating. And I love that kind of stuff. So mm-hmm. pretty much everyone over the age of 30 is just like, you idiots. This is so obvious. <laughs> this is obvious. Uh, I know. <laughs> I know. One, one YouTube guy I follow a little bit uh, who has a lot of good stuff about older computers and stuff. Mm-hmm. Uh, he's called the 8-Bit Guy. Um, he actually, I actually ended up watching a, like a three-part miniseries that he did. Where one was about cassettes, one was about floppies, and one was about cartridges. And he kind of goes into examples on different computers of how these different formats worked. And uh, he did a really good job with that. And I learned a couple of things from that. Um, so that's just that's just one. That's probably one of the better examples I saw of like actually an explanation of the tapes. Because most people, like there's a lot of people who upload like, here's what the loading screen is for this game. Or, oh, hey, here's me putting a cassette tape in and loading a game. But there's not like a lot of high quality, like good explanations of how it worked or anything. Yeah. Um, but his was a good, his was a good one though. So um, that's worth checking out if you're interested in this kind of stuff. So we hope you listeners learned something uh, unless you're above the age of 30, then you probably already know about it. <laughs> <laughs> um, maybe, maybe this took you back to remember those, those memories. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. So um the the whole world of like computing during this time is like its own massive thing that like we only touched the tip of the iceberg on with this episode mm-hmm. um partially because i think neither of us just really know a whole lot about that whole thing i find what i have learned i've have found really interesting i just don't know enough about it um anyway i really enjoyed the hell out of making this episode and doing it um, i i enjoyed listening to you cool <laughs> <laughs> and look, and you you don't have to talk that much. That's true because you're sick. So that's all good. Uh, so if you listeners learned something, tell us on Facebook at facebook.com/getyourfunk, and tell us the favorite thing that you learned from this episode. Or if you had any of these actual cassette games in your childhood. Yeah, uh, if you have any fond, I guess that's a more interesting thing, I suppose. Of you know, if you have any fond memories of this, definitely let us know because uh, we've never experienced it. Mm-hmm. And uh, if you don't feel like talking to us, that's totally fine. Uh, but if you are interested in other episodes that we've done about other formats, uh, we actually just did one the previous episode about a bunch of kind of failed formats over time. Mm-hmm. Um, but we've done other ones about like we did we did uh, various forms of like mini cassettes. Uh, we did, we, did you know, we talked about, we talk about vinyl all the time. We talked about, we talked about hit clips. We did one on eight track a couple years ago. Mm-hmm. Um, I think there's been a few others, uh, but you, you know, there's a search bar on getyourfunk.com. You can type in butts, whatever. And there's thing you can type in butts, but you can, you can type in other more relevant things too. Anyway. So thank you, Kyle. You're welcome. And thank you listeners for listening. We love you. Bye.